I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. COVID's uh, ruined everything in 2020. And if you live in America, a lot is pretty horrible right now. But you think 2020 can't ruin a whole season. But if you live in Minnesota, uh, it did because it snowed and it's freezing out. So that happened kind of early, and that sucks, because it ruined all my uh, you know, uh, pumpkin spice lattes and, and warm sweaters and raking and rubbing my belly pridefully in the, the long shadows of a low-hanging sun. But, uh, so, with that, uh, there's also the, what's the, what do you look forward to in October, besides the leaves and all that kind of fun stuff? Well, you look forward to trick-or-treating. Uh, is it... What is it about trick-or-treating that's so satisfying? Is it, as an adult or a kid, is it that it's uh, really dangerous? It's a, a night of scares and whatever? No, it's not. No one ever gets scared on Halloween. There's nothing ever horrible happening on Halloween. But it's the promise that it might happen, even though it never, ever happens. Back in the 70s, uh, I remember I dressed up as Chewbacca, a Wookiee. Uh, one of the breed of Wookiee. And I got the suit from Target... Uh, it was a all vinyl, you know, arms and legs, and and uh, it's just a one-piece suit that you button up in the back or whatever. And the arms and legs are brown, but the the chest area was sort of tan, and it just had an illustration of a a Wookiee with its mouth open, showing its teeth, which I never really understood what that's supposed to be because you you always see that on the Star Wars pictures. Is he is that him smiling? Yeah, I can't tell. Is he is he calling out to the wilderness uh, to? Proclaim battle? I have no idea. But that was on the front. And uh, it just kind of give you like a faceplate, the front half of a mask with a rubber band that goes around the back of your head of a Wookiee. And I was, as a kid, convinced this is it. I am convincingly a Wookiee. And no one can tell me different, and they will all quake in fear of my giant furry body. So I step outside with my mom, and uh, there's a guy out there. Surrounded by kids. Uh, he's wearing an all-black cape and uh, all-black suit and some sort of weird black mask that had glowing LED red light for eyes. And uh, it looked satanic, and I saw it and started instantly crying because, I don't know, I was like, what, four or something? I have no idea how old I was. And I started crying, and I held my mom, and, and then the guy took his mask off, and it was just, uh, you know, Ken. Down the down the way, we live in a townhome complex, so it's just like five doors away. It's like, ah, don't cry, it's me, Ken. Like, ah, Ken, where'd you get that that crazy mask? Because LEDs lights for eyes back in the seventies was expensive as hell. Uh, I remember my dad had a watch made of LEDs, and that thing cost thousands of dollars. So uh, that was probably the closest I'm ever going to have to, you know, actually terrifying night. Well, thanks to COVID, uh, I can't even enjoy. Kids coming to my door asking for candy because uh, no one wants to touch anything. So I've got 
a big scooper, like you find from the Raisin Bran cereal. Uh, it's a big scoop. Normally, according to Raisin Bran, this scooper's only ever used for raisins, but mine is used for candy. And so I scoop them into tiny little adorable bags that I'm just going to stick out on the front door. And then uh, people can just grab a bag and I'll kind of wave with it. My shtick, I'm always so successful with Halloween when kids trick or treat because I take whatever costume they're wearing and I purposely get it wrong. And every kid does the same thing. Uh, they come dressed as a, as a cop or something and they say, hey, what are you? What are you, a snowman? Yeah. And they go, no, I'm not a snowman. I'm clearly a police officer. Oh, I see what you did. And I go, ah, yes, it was on purpose. And then the kid will say, oh, we're having a lot of fun here, aren't we? And I say, yeah, we are. So that's normally what I look forward to, and I have a great time doing it. I make sure I give out a ton of candy uh, so the kids around the neighborhood know that I'm the guy that has a lot of candy. That doesn't sound good. There's kind of no way to phrase that where that sounds positive. I'm trying to be a nice person. But, uh, so what about this season? Can I take away that hasn't been ruined for me? Well, the other night, uh, my daughters, who are older, 15 and 13, and more jaded, don't care about much, I said, we're carving pumpkins, as we normally do every year, and they always drag their feet and they don't like it. And uh, we sat down, we carved pumpkins, and I put on Over the Garden Wall, which is a cartoon from uh, Cartoon Network, which is cute. Uh, all the characters are based on uh, 1900s illustrations of Halloween postcards. So it's like weird gourds with straw for legs and arms and stuff. It's very abstract. They got weird lips and eyes. Eh, well, it's weird. But anyways, uh, but the, the show is kind of eerie because of that style and also very cute. And it's a positive little show and it's adorable. You can watch it in about two hours. So the kids and I uh, sat down. Uh, they were grumbling. They didn't like it. And uh, put the newspaper, which is also a very old thing that no one does anymore, but I got a hold of one, and I put it down, and uh, we carved the pumpkins and played over the garden wall, and they actually didn't mind it. They were talking about how they remembered this part from the cartoon that they haven't seen in a long time. They remembered that part. And then my oldest daughter, who's going to a costume party, said, I think I'm going to dress like the main character from this show. I'm like, oh, cute. So they carved pumpkins, I made them hot chocolate, and they watched the entire show. They spent two hours with me, these teens. And it uh, was a nice little memory. Uh, I went outside, took a couple pictures of them through the window, which is kind of creepy. Again, that doesn't sound good. That's two times now I've said something that sounds perverted. Uh, but no, it's just I want to get a picture of them carving little pumpkins uh, through the window. And I got it, and it's cute, and I'm keeping it. Uh, with my new iPhone 12. And then after that, uh, you know, they went to bed or whatever. And then this morning, uh, my daughter said, I want to go to Party City. And I want to buy a cape and some other stuff, suspenders, to look like the main character from the, uh, from the cartoon. So we did. And uh, Party City's kind of a trashy environment. It's kind of gross in there. Plus, it's just crammed with people. And uh, no one's wearing masks, even though we have a second wave of the, uh, the virus. Uh, my point is, it was a disturbing situation, but uh, I went there for my daughter. We bought the stuff she needed and uh, came back and she had to have a tie, I guess, like the character. So I showed her how to tie a tie. Uh, I showed her how to do a Windsor knot, a double loop. And uh, she actually got the hang of it and made a lot of jokes. And I said, uh, I always wish I had a son so I could teach him how to tie a tie, but you're doing it. Uh, do you want to learn how to shave? She didn't respond to that well. Anyways, 
That's enough rambling. Let's uh, dive into the story. Well, today we're going to learn about Bram Stoker, a famous vampire novelist, uh, born the 8th of November, 1847, and died on the 20th of April, 1912. Uh, he was an Irish author, best known uh, today for his 1897 gothic horror novel, Dracula. During his lifetime, uh, he was better known as the personal assistant of actor Sir Henry Irving and business manager of the Lyceum Theater, uh, which Irving owned. Burp. There's not a lot about him beyond that that's worth noting. Uh, I mean, in personal life, a lot of details uh, in Wikipedia. So I said, huh, how am I going to make this more interesting? So I went to Borders Bookstore uh, at the Mall of America which doesn't exist anymore, so clearly this is made up. And then I uh, I said to the patron person behind the desk, and I said, Ex- excuse me, sir, I want to learn more about Bram Stoker. And he said, uh, you mean Abraham, quote, Bram, unquote, Stoker? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, how about this? I will leave clues for you around the entire Mall of America uh, in Bloomington, Minnesota. And uh, in each, each spot will take you to a new spot with more information about him. And I said, well, this sounds exciting, sir. And he said, okay, well, why don't you come back in, a, in about an hour and, uh, and I'll give you your first clue. So I went and took a dump in one of the... I, I always use the family bathrooms whenever you go to a mall. The family ones are really big. They're made for, like, if you got, like, a baby and stuff, you got to change the baby. I use those. I like a lot of space, but I also want my privacy. So I did that for about an hour, and then I came back out, and I went over to the Borders Books, which doesn't exist anymore, so clearly it's fake. And then I said, uh, I'm prepared, sir. And he said, here is your first clue. And he handed me a slip of paper, and it said, go to the Caribou Coffee Store. And I said, ah there's like two here. And he goes, well, you'll have to figure it out. So lucky for me, the first one I went to, uh, I kind of wandered around, looked at some of the tables and shelves, stuff. And couldn't find anything. And I, and I said, excuse me, madam, a woman working behind the, the counter. I said, do you have a clue for me? And she says, ah, oh, you, you are the Bram Stoker man. And I said, yes, I am. So she said, why don't you look at some of our, uh, pre-ground coffee bags. So I did. I rifled through a shelf full of them and finally found a piece of paper that said the date and birth. As I have stated before, Stoker was born on November 8th, 1847. His place of birth was uh, at Marino Crescent, uh, Clonarf, Ireland. Uh, check facts about Adam Blade here. So... Clearly, they got their uh, fun facts about Bram Stoker from factfile.org, which is clearly uh, horribly translated into English from whatever native language. So at the bottom of it, it said, um, go to Lids. Lids being a store that sells hats. Not cool hats, 
Just baseball hats. So I went to Lids. I rushed off to Lids, and I ran as fast as I could. And I finally got down, and I said, and I started looking around, and I kind of picked up a couple hats on the shelves and sort of looked at them, and then I sort of put them on awkwardly, pretending as if I was going to purchase one, because I didn't want to seem suspicious. And uh, finally, I finally get to a, a lid, uh, a hat that's all black with a black logo of uh, the, the New England Patriots on it. And then I lifted it up, and it said, Parents of Bram Stoker was a, on a slip of paper inside the hat. His father was Abraham Stoker from Dublin. His mother was Charlotte Mathilda Blake Thornley. Uh, during his childhood time, he spent his time in country Saligo. There were seven kids in the family, and Stoker was the third child. And I said, interesting. And at the bottom of that, it said, uh, go to, is it still Snoopy Land there? No. Or is it Nickelodeon now? I think it's Nickelodeon now. That said, go to the SpongeBob statue in the center of Nickelodeon Land. And I was like, oh, okay. So I ran as fast as I could, and I got to the SpongeBob statue, and uh, I looked around, and I couldn't really find anything, but tucked around the groin of his pants was a slip of paper that says, the college time... In 1864 till 1870, there was educated at Trinity College, Dublin, uh, where he had no major health issues. It was very surprising to know that he was named university athlete due to his excellent skill as an athlete. Which was all very interesting, except that I knew that if he went to college and he had a college time, there must be a graduation time. There was nothing at the bottom of the slip that gave me any indication of where to look next. So I... Blankly stared around, desperate, looking for any kind of sign of what I'm supposed to do next, and there was a vivacious and beautiful woman sitting at a bench uh, near the iCarly part of the park. <laughs> she looked up at me and gestured toward me, uh, and then I thought, well, that can't be right. And so I looked around some more and uh, tried to see if there was anything else. And uh, I saw a, a kind of a creepy man standing by himself over by this uh, candy section with uh, sandy cheeks from SpongeBob uh, with a giant hand with just a bunch of candy and kids are just taking candy from it. And so I thought, uh, uh, maybe that strange man over there. Uh, the woman called out, come to me, boy. Come to me. And I thought, uh, well, that seems too easy. Uh, beautiful, vivacious, uh, uh, Sumptuous woman, uh, comely. Nah, it can't be. That's too easy and it can't be for me. So I went over to the creepy guy in a long overcoat standing by the giant Sandy Cheeks hand and I said, uh, Do you got anything for me? And he said, I do. You made the correct choice. You stayed away from the sin of uh, lust and uh, spoke to me instead. And I said, Yes. And he said, The graduation time. And I said, Ooh. He said, When he graduated from college, he earned a BA in mathematics. However, he was interested with theater. Then he told me to go back to Borders Books, which I did, and uh, the guy behind the counter said, oh, you found all the clues. And I said, yes, I did. That last part was very, uh, uh, really pulled on me. And he goes, ah, well, that's, uh, I said, really try to get in there, get to the heart of uh, what makes you a man. And uh, then we sat around and smoked cigars uh, in the back room where uh, all, the, all the employees hang out and have their lunch and stuff. And we talked about life and, and uh, what makes October such a special season. Well, all right, let's start the story. The Judge's House 
by Bram Stoker. When the time for his examination drew near, Malcolm Malcolmson, <laughs> Malcolm Malcolmson, that's his name. I read this story a long time ago, and remember it, just like I've been saying about everything in this book, I remember it being really good, but reading it out loud might be a whole other uh, world. I didn't remember Malcolm Malcolmson being the main character's name. Uh, made up his mind to go somewhere to read by himself. Oh, he feared the attractions of the seaside, and he also he feared completely rural isolation, for, he knew, uh, for of old he knew its charms. And so he determined to find some unpretentious nah, little town where there would be nothing to distract him. He refrained from asking suggestions for many of his friends, for he argued that each would recommend some place of which he had knowledge and where he already had acquaintances. As Malcolmson <laughs> wished to avoid friends, he had no wish to encumber himself with the attention of friends' friends, and so he determined to look out for a place for himself. Uh, he packed a portmanteau uh, with some clothes and all the books he required, and then took a ticket for the first name on the local timetable, which he did not know. When at the end of three hours' journey he alighted at Ben Church, he felt satisfied that he had so far obliterated his tracks as to be sure of having a peaceful opportunity of pursuing his studies. And he went straight to one inn, uh, which the sleepy little place contained, and put up for the night. Ben Church now was a market town, and once in three weeks was crowded to excess. But for the remainder of the 21 days, it was an attractive as, a, as attractive as a desert. Malcolmson looked around the day after his arrival to try to find quarters more isolated than even so quiet as the inn the good traveler afforded. There was only one place which took his fancy, and it certainly satisfied his wildest ideas regarding quiet. In fact, quiet was not the proper word to apply to it. Desolation was the only term conveying any suitable idea of its isolation. It uh, was an old, uh, rambling, heavy-built house of the Jacobean style. Oh, with heavy gables and windows. Usually, yeah, small, and set higher than was customary in such houses, and uh, was surrounded by a high brick wall. Oh, massively built. Indeed, on examination, it looked more like a fortified house than an ordinary dwelling, but all these things pleased Malcolmson. Now here, yeah, he thought, is the spot I have been looking for, and if I can only get opportunity of using it, I shall be happy. Now his joy was increased when he realized beyond doubt that it was not at present inhabited. This is weird. So he wants to go on a trip just so that he can be locked away in a house and do homework? That's not really a vacation. From the post office, he got the name of the agent, who was rarely surprised at the application to rent a part of the old house. Uh, Mr. Cranford, the local lawyer and agent, was a genial old gentleman. I frankly confessed his delight at anyone being willing to live in the house. To tell the truth, uh, said he, I should only be too happy on behalf of the owners to let anyone have the house rent-free for a term of years, if only to accustom the people here to see it inhabited. It has been so long empty that some kind of uh, uh, absurd prejudice has grown up about it, and it can be best put down by its occupation, if only, he added with a sly glance, ooh, and Malcolmson, uh, by a scholar like yourself, who wants it for uh, quiet for a time. Malcolmson thought it needless to ask the agent about the, quote, absurd prejudice. 
He knew he would get more information, if he should require it, on the subject from the quarters. Uh, he paid his three months' rent, uh, got a receipt. Why wouldn't you just do it for free, so that people can see it occupied by a smart, smart college man? In the name of the old woman, who would probably undertake to, quote, do for him. Ugh. And came away with the keys in his pocket. Then he went to the landlady of the inn, who was cheerful and most kindly person, and asked for advice as such stores and provisions who would most likely require. As she threw up her hands in amazement when he told her where he was going to settle himself. Oh, not the, not the judge's house, as she said, and grew pale as she spoke. He explained the locality of the house, saying uh, that he did not know its name. And when he had finished, she answered, Ah, yeah, sure enough, sure, sure enough, the very place. It is the, it's the judge's house, sure enough. And he asked her to tell him about the place, uh, why so-called, and what there was against it. Burp, she told him that it was so-called locally because it had been many years before. How long, she could not say. As she was uh, herself from another part of the country... But she thought it must have been a hundred years or more. Oh, the abode of the judge, who was held in great terror on account of his harsh sentences uh, and the hostility uh, to prisoners at Aziz's. As to what there was against the house itself, she could not tell. She had often asked, but no one could inform her. But there was a general feeling that there was, in italics, something. And for her own part, she could not take all the money and drink water's bank. That's a weird name. And stay at the house for an hour by herself. Then she apologized to Malcolmson for her disturbing talk. That's too bad of me, sir, and you, and a young gentleman, too, if you will pardon me saying it, going to live there all alone. If you were my boy, and you'll excuse me for saying it, you wouldn't sleep there at night, not if I had to go there myself and pull the big alarm bell that's on the roof. The good creature was so manifestly in earnest, and it was so kindly in her intentions that Malcolmson, although amused, was touched, and uh, told her kindly how much he appreciated her interest in him, and added, But my dear Mrs. Witham, indeed you will not need to be concerned about me, exclamation point, a man who is reading for the mathematical tripos uh, has too much to think of to be disturbed by any of these mm, mysterious mm, somethings. And his work is of too exact and prosaic. Is he talking about himself in the third person? Uh, kind to allow his having any corner in his mind for mysteries of any kind. Uh, harmonical progression, uh, presumptions and combinations, and elliptic functions have sufficient mysteries for me! Exclamation point. Well, Mrs. Witham kindly undertook to see his commissions and went himself to look for the old woman who had been recommended to him. Uh, when he returned to the judge's house with her, after an interval of a couple hours, he found uh, Mrs. Witham herself uh, waiting with several men and boys carrying parcels and an upholsterous man with a bed and cart. For, she said, though tables and chairs might be all very well, a bed that hadn't been aired for mayhap fifty years was not proper for young bones to lie on. I always wonder about that. You watch old horror movies, and also like in this book, uh, you go to an old house that's been abandoned for fifty years, uh, usually it's rotting and decaying and smells really bad and has mouse poops everywhere and dust and all sorts of... You can't just lay on a super old bed and go to sleep. But uh, I was watching a movie with my friend the other night, and uh, we pointed that out. Like, this house has been abandoned for a hundred years. Why would you sleep on that bed? It's got to be full of dead bugs. I'll move on. 
But I'm glad in this book they actually called that out, so apparently this author sides with me. She was evidently curious to see the inside of the house, and though manifestly so afraid of the, quote, somethings, that at the slightest sound she clutched onto Malcolmson, whom she never left for a moment, went over the whole place. After his examination of the house, Malcolmson decided to take up his abode in the great dining room, which was big enough to serve for all his requirements. And Mrs. Uh, with him, uh, with the aid of the chairwoman, Mrs. Dempster, proceeded to arrange matters. And when the hampers were brought in and unpacked, Malcolmson saw that with much kind forethought, she had sent from her own kitchen sufficient provisions uh, to last for a few days. Before going, she expressed all sorts of kind wishes, and at the door turned and said, And perhaps, sir, as the room is big and uh, drafty, it might be well to have one of those big screens put round your bed at night. Uh, tell the truth, I would die myself if I were to be so shut in with all kinds of, quote, things that put their heads round the sides and over the top. Uh, and look at me. The image which she called up was too much for her nerves, and she fled incontinently. Again, this author is inside my mind, because my first thought is, mice would be all over the damn place. And uh, so she's literally saying you should put up a whole screen. I am 100% behind this so far. Mrs. Dempster sniffed in a superior manner. How do you do that? And the landlady disappeared and remarked that for her own part, she wasn't afraid of all the bogies in the kingdom. I tell you what it is, sir, she said. Bogies is all kinds and all sorts of things. Except bogies, aha, rats and mice and beetles and creaky doors and loose slates and broken pipes and, and the stiff drawer handles uh, that stay out when you pull them and then fall down in the middle. Of the this guy's got OCD. I am 100% behind this person. In the middle of the night, uh, look at the wainscot of the room. It is old, hundreds of years old. Do you think there's no rats and beetles there? I am so with this guy. <laughs> Do you imagine, sir, that you don't see none of them? Rats is bogies, I tell you, and bogies is rats. And don't you get to think anything else. Mrs. Dempster, said Malcolmson gravely, making her a polite bow. You know more than a senior wrangler. What does that mean? And let me say that as a mark of esteem for your indebitable soundness of head and heart, I shall, when I go, give you possession of this house and let you stay here by yourself for at least two months of my tenancy, for four weeks will serve my purpose. Now, thank you kindly, sir, she answered, but I couldn't sleep away from home at night. I am in Greenbow's charity, and if I slept at night away from my rooms, I should lose all I have to live on. Uh, the rules are very strict, and there's too many uh, watching for vacancy for me to run any risks in the matter. This is really detailed. You don't need to know any of this. Only for that, sir, I would gladly come here and attend on you altogether during my stay. My good woman, said Malcolmson hastily, I have come here on purpose to obtain solitude. And believe me that I am grateful to the late Greenbow to have so organized his admirable charity, whatever it is, that I am perforce denied the opportunity of suffering uh, from such a form of temptation. St. Anthony himself could not be more rigid to the point. The old woman laughed harshly. How do you do that? Ah, you young gentlemen, she said. You don't fear for not, and belike you'll get all the solitude you want here. She set to work for her cleaning, and by nightfall, when Malcolmson returned from his walk, he, as he always had one of his books to study as he walked, 
weird. He found the room swept and tidied, a fire burning in the old hearth, a lamp lit, and the table spread for supper with Mrs. Wintham's excellent fare. This comfort, indeed, he said as he rubbed his hands. When he had finished his supper and lifted the tray uh, to the other end of the great oak dining table, he got out his books again, uh, put fresh wood on the fire, trimmed his lamp, and set himself down to a spell of real hard work. Oh, he went on without pause till about, uh, ooh, uh, I don't know, 11 o'clock, when he knocked off for a bit to fix his fire and lamp and make himself a, a cup of tea. And he had always been a, a tea drinker, and during his college life he sat late at work and had tea taken late. The rest was a great luxury to him, and he enjoyed it with a sense of delicious, voluptuous ease. The renowned fire leapt and sparkled and threw quaint shadows against the great old room, and as he slipped his hot tea, he reveled in the sense of, uh, sipped his hot tea, loved in the sense of isolation from this kind, and when he had begun to notice for the first time what a noise the rats were making. Again, gross. Surely, he thought, yeah, they cannot have been at all uh, the whole time I was reading. Had they been, I must have noticed it. Presently, when the noise increased, he satisfied himself that it was really new. It was evident that at first the rats had been frightened at the presence of a stranger and the light of a fire and a mad lamp, but that as time went on they had grown bolder and were now disporting themselves as was their wont. Well, how busy they were. Harked the strange noises up and down behind the old wainscot, over the ceiling and under the floor they raced and gnawed and, and scratched. Malcolmson smiled to himself as he recalled to mind the saying of Mrs. Dempster, bogies is rats, rats is bogey. Ah, the tea began to have its effect of an intellectual and nervous stimulus. Ah, he saw the joy, another long spell of work to be done before the night was passed, and in the sense of security which it gave him. He allowed himself the luxury of a good look round the room. That's a luxury. And he took his lamp in one hand and went all around, wandering uh, that so quaint, or wondering that so quaint and beautiful an old house had been so long neglected. The carving of the oak on the panels of the wainscot was fine, and on around the doors and windows it was beautiful and rare merit. Uh, there were some old pictures on the walls, and they were coated so thick with dust and dirt that he could not distinguish any detail of them. Uh, though he held his lamp as high as he could over his head, uh, here and there he went around and saw some crack or hole blocked by, for a moment by the face of a rat with his bright eyes glittering in the light. But in an instant it was gone, and a squeak and a scamper followed. The thing that most struck him, uh, however was the rope of the great alarm bell on the roof, which hung down in a corner of the room on the right-hand side of the fireplace. He uh, pulled up close to the hearth a great high-backed carved oak chair and sat down to his last cup of tea, just kind of glossing over this huge rope hanging in the room. I don't think that's normal. When this was done, he made up a fire and went back to his work, and sitting at the corner of the table, having the fire to his left, and for a while the rats disturbed him somewhat with their perpetual scampering, uh, scampering. He got accustomed to the noise, as one does to the ticking of a clock or to the roar of moving water. I would not. If I heard all that mouse noise, I would go totally crazy. Rats, too. They're much larger. And he became so immersed in his work that everything in the world, except the problem which he was trying to solve, passed away from him. Uh, he suddenly looked up. His problem was still unsolved. 
and there was in the air that sense of the hour before the dawn, which is so dread to doubtful life. The noise of the rats ceased, and indeed to him it seemed they must have ceased but lately, and that it was a sudden cessation which had disturbed him. The fire had fallen low, but still it threw out a deep red glow. As he looked, nah, he started, in spite of his sang Freud. There, on the great, high-backed, carved oak chair by the right side of the fireplace, sat an enormous rat, steadily glaring at him with baleful eyes. I made a motion to it as though to hunt it away, but it didn't stir. And then he made a motion of throwing something, still it didn't stir, but showed its great white teeth angrily, and its cruel eyes showed in the lamplight with an avid vindictiveness. Malcolmson felt amazed, and seizing the poker from the hearth, he ran at it to kill it. Before, however, he could strike at the rat with a squeak that sounded like the concentration of hate, <laughs> jumped upon the concentration of hate, jumped upon the floor, and running up the rope of the alarm bell, disappeared in the darkness beyond the range of the green shaded lamp. Instantly, strange to say, the noisy scampering of the rats in the wainscot began again. By this time, Malcolmson's mind was quite off the problem, and a shrill cockcrow outside told him of the appropriate uh, approach of morning, and he went to bed as to go to sleep. He slept so sound that he was not even waked by Mrs. Dempster in the morning uh, to make up his room. How can you sleep knowing that there's rats everywhere? And laying on bed, they'll crawl all over you. I don't... Uh, the OCD in this is driving me crazy. It was only then that she had tidied up the place and got his breakfast ready and tapped on the screen, which closed his bed in. Oh, he put the screen up. Then he woke. Uh, he was a little tired still after his night's hard work, but a strong cup of tea soon uh, freshened him up, and taking his book, he went out for his morning walk, bringing him uh, with him a few sandwiches, lest he should not care to return till dinner time. He found a quiet walk between the high elms, some way outside of town, and here he spent the greater part of the day studying his Laplace. On his return, he looked in to see Mrs. Witham and to thank her for her kindness. When she saw uh, him coming through the diamond-paned uh, bay window uh, of her sanctum, she came out to meet him and asked him in. She looked at him searchingly and told, and she shook her head and said, uh, You must not overdo, sir. You're paler this morning than you should be. Uh, two late hours and too hard work on the brain isn't good for any man. But tell me, sir, how did you pass the night? Well, I hope, but my heart, exclamation point. Sir, I was glad when Mrs. Dempster told me this morning that you were all right and sleeping sound when she went in. Oh, I was all right, he answered, smiling. The somethings didn't worry me as yet, only the rats. And they had a circus, I tell you, all over the place. Uh, there was one yeah, wicked-looking old devil that sat up on my chair by the fire and wouldn't go till I took the poker at him. And then he ran up the rope of the alarm bell and got to somewhere up the wall of the ceiling, and I couldn't see where it was so dark. Mercy on us, said Mrs. Witham. An old devil, and sitting on the chair by the fireside. Uh, take care, sir, exclamation point. Take care, exclamation point. There's many a true word spoken in jest. How do you mean? Upon my word, I don't understand. 
An old devil, exclamation point. The old devil, perhaps, there, exclamation point. Sir, you needn't laugh, for Malcolmson had broken into a hearty peal. You young folks thinks it's easy to laugh at things that makes older ones shudder. Never mind, sir, never mind. Please, God, you'll laugh all the time, if it's what I wish you myself. And the good lady beamed over in sympathy with the enjoyment, her fears gone for a moment. Oh, forgive me, said Malcolmson presently. Don't think me rude, but the the idea was too much for me. That the old devil himself was on the chair last night, exclamation point. And at the thought, he laughed again. And then he went home to dinner. This evening, the scampering of the rats began earlier. Indeed, it had been going on before his arrival. It only ceased whilst his presence by its freshness disturbed him. After after dinner, he sat by the fire for a while and uh, had a smoke. And then, having cleared his table, began to work as before. Tonight, the rats disturbed him more than they had done on the previous night. Oh, how they scampered up and down and under and over. Oh, how they squeaked and scratched and gnawed. How they, uh, getting bolder by degrees came to the mouths uh, of the holes and to the chinks and the cracks and the crannies and the wainscoting till their, their eyes shone like eh, tiny lamps as the firelight rose and fell. But to him, now doubtless accustomed to them, their eyes were not wicked, only their playfulness touched him. Weird. Sometimes the boldest of them made sallies out on the floor along the boldies of the wainscot. See, this would be disturbing to me. And I would, Rats are huge. They're big. I got mice in my basement, and they make me want to throw up. Now and again, as they disturbed him, Malcolmson made no sound to frighten them, smiting the table with his hand or giving a harsh hish-hish so that they fled straight away to their holes. And so the early part of the night wore on, and despite the noise, Malcolmson got more and more immersed in his work. All at once he stopped, as on the previous night, being overcome by a sudden sense of silence. Ah, there was not the faintest sound of a gnaw or a scratch or a squeak. The silence was as of the grave. He remembered the odd occurrence the previous night, and instinctively he looked at the chair, standing close by the fireside, and then a very odd sensation thrilled through him. There, on the great high-backed carved oak chair beside the fireplace, sat an enormous rat, steadily glaring at him with the baleful eyes. That instinctively he took the nearest thing in his hand, a book of logarithms, and flung it at it. And the book was badly and the rat uh, didn't stir. So again, the poker performance of the previous night was repeated. Again, the rat, being closely pursued, fled up the rope of the alarm bell. Strangely, too, the departure of the rat was instantly followed by a renewal of the noise made by the general rat community. On the occasion, as on the previous one, Malcolmson could not see at what part of the room the rat disappeared, for the green shade of the lamp left the upper part of the room in darkness, and the fire had burned below. I'm looking at his watch. I found it was close on midnight, and not sorry for the diverse divertisement. And it's in italics, too. Made up his fire and made himself his nightly pot of tea. <laughs> He got through a good spell of work and thought himself entitled to a cigarette. So he sat with the great carved oak chair before the fire and enjoyed it. Whilst smoking, he began to think that he would like to know where the rat disappeared to. Ah, for he had certain ideas for the morrow, not entirely disconnected with the, with the rat trap. Accordingly, he lit another lamp and placed it so that he could shine well into the right-hand corner of the wall by the fireplace and 
and then he got all the books he had with him, he placed them handy to throw in the vermin. Finally, he lifted the rope of the alarm bell and placed the end of it on the table, fixing the extreme end out of the lamp. As he handled it, he could not help but notice how pliable it was, especially for so strong a rope, and uh, one not in use. Uh, quote, you could hang a man with it, he thought to himself. When his preparations were made, he looked round and said complacently, There now, friend, I think we shall learn something of you this time. Then I began his work again, and though he before somewhat disturbed at the first by a noise of the rats, soon lost himself in the prepositions and the problems. Again he was called to his immediate surroundings, suddenly, and this time it might not have been the sudden silence only which took his attention. There was a slight movement of the rope, the lamp moved. Without stirring, he looked to see if his pile of books was in range, and he cast his eye along the rope. As he looked, he saw a great rat drop from the rope out of the oak armchair and sit there, glaring at him. Ah, he raised a book in his right hand and, taking carefully, flung it at the rat. The latter, with a quick movement, sprang aside and dodged the missile. They took another ah, book and a third and flung them one after another at the rat, but each time unsuccessfully. Unless he stood with a book poised in his hand to throw, and the rat squeaked and seemed afraid. This made Malcolmson more than ever eager to strike. The book flew and struck the rat with a resounding blow. It gave his terrified squeak, and returning on its pursuer, a look of terrible malevolence. He gave burp, burp, wow just kind of exploded there for a minute, ran up the chair back and made a great thump to the rope of the alarm bell, ran up it like lightning. The lamp rocked under the sudden strain, but it was a heavy one and did not topple over. Malcolmson kept his eyes on the rat and saw by the light of the second lamp leap a molding of the wainscot and disappear through the hole in the great pictures which hung on the wall, obscured and invisible through its coating of dirt and dust. I shall look up my friend's habitation in the morning, said the student, as he went over to collect his books. The third picture from the fireplace I shall not forget. He picked up the books one by one, commenting on them as he lifted them. Uh, conic sections, he does not mind, nor solidal oscillations, nor the principa, or the quarantations, or the thermodynamics. Now for the book that fetched him. Malcolmson took it up and looked at it. And as he did so, he started and a sudden pallor overspread his face. He looked round uneasily and shivered slightly, as he murmured to himself, The Bible my mother gave me, and what an odd coincidence. He sat down to work again, and the rats in the wainscoting renewed their gambols. Now they didn't disturb him, however. Somehow their presence gave him a sense of companionship. Hmm, gross. Which he could not attend his work, and after striving to master the subject of which he was engaged, gave it up in despair and went to his bed and the first streak of dawn stole in through the eastern window. He slept heavily, but uneasily, and dreamed much. And when Mrs. Demper woke him late in the morning, he seemed ill at ease and for a few minutes did not seem to realize exactly where he was. His first request rather surprised the servants. Uh, Mrs. Dempster, uh, when I'm out today, and I wish you would uh, get the steps and dust or wash those pictures, especially that, that third one uh, from the fireplace. I want to see what they are. Late in the afternoon, 
Malcolmson worked at his books in the shaded walk, and the cheerfulness of the previous day came back to him as the day wore on, and he found that his reading was progressing well, hmm, and he had worked out a satisfactory conclusion of all the problems which had yet baffled him, and it was a state of jubilation that he paid a visit to Mrs. Witham at the, quote, good traveler, and found a stranger in the cozy sitting room with the landlady who was introduced to him as Dr. Thornhill. Ashes. Ah, quite at ease, and this combined with the doctor's plunging into a once in a series of questions made Malcolmson come to the conclusion that his presence was not an accident. So, without preliminary, he said, eh, Dr. Thornhill, I shall with pleasure answer you any question you may choose to ask me if you answer me one question first. The doctor seemed surprised, but he smiled and answered at once, Done! Uh, what is it? Uh, did Mrs. Witham ask you to come here and see me and advise me? Dr. Thornhill, for a moment, was taken aback, and Mrs. Witham got fiery red and turned away. But the doctor was a frank and ready man, and answered at once and openly, She did, but she didn't intend you to know it. I suppose, is my clumsy haste that made you suspect, as she told me that she did not like the idea of your being in the house all by herself, and that she thought you took too much uh, strong tea. In fact, she wants me to advise you, if possible, to give up the tea and the very late hours. I was keen, a student in my time, I suppose I took the liberty of a college man, and without offense, advise you uh, not quite as a stranger. Malcolmson, with a bright smile, held out his hand. Shake, as they say in America, <laughs> he said. I must thank you for your kindness. And Mrs. Witham, too. And your kindness deserves a return on my part. I promise to take more and more strong tea. Uh, no tea at all, if you'll let me. And I shall go to bed. To oh, you're going to get headaches. I shall go to bed tonight at one o'clock at the latest. Will that do? Capital, said the doctor. Uh, now tell us uh, all that you have noticed in the house. And so Malcolmson then and there told in minute detail all that had happened in the last two nights. He was interrupted every now and then by some exclamation from Mrs. Witham. Shh, don't interrupt. Till finally, when she told of the episode of the Bible and the landlady's pent-up emotions, found vent in a shriek. Yeah, she should be quiet because she's interrupting. And then it was not until a stiff glass of brandy and water had been administered that she grew composed again. Dr. Thornhill listened with a face of growing gravity. And when the narrative was complete... And Mrs. Witham had been restored, he asked, The rat always went up the rope of the alarm bell? Ah, always. I suppose you know, said the doctor after a pause, what the rope is. Eh, no. It is, said the doctor slowly, the very rope which the hangman used for all his victims of the judge's judicial rancor. Here, he was interrupted by another scream from Mrs. Witham, who's always interrupting, and steps had to be taken for her recovery. Really? They had to stop and run over and help her? Malcolmson, having looked at his watch, found that it was close to his dinner hour. Gone home before her complete recovery. When Mrs. Witham was herself again, she almost assailed the doctor with angry questions as to what he meant by putting such horrible ideas into the poor young man's mind. There he was quite enough there already to upset him, she added. Dr. Thorhill replied, uh, My dear madam, I had a distinct purpose in it! Exclamation point. I wanted to draw his attention to the bell rope. Burp, and to fix it there. 
It may be that he is in a highly overwrought state and has been studying too much. That was another burp. Although I am bound to say that he seems as sound and healthy a young man mentally and bodily as ever I saw. But when the rats and that suggestion of the devil, the doctor shook his head and went on. I would have offered to go and stay the first night with him, but that I felt sure it uh, would have been a cause of offense. He may in the night have some strange fright or hallucination, and if he does, I want him to pull that rope. All alone as he is, I will give us warning, and we may reach him in time to be of service. I shall be sitting up pretty late tonight, and shall keep my ears open, and don't be alarmed if the Ben Church gets a surprise before morning. Oh, doctor, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean this, that possibly, nay, more probably, we shall hear the great alarm bell from the judge's house tonight. And the doctor made... Uh, about as effective an exit as could be thought of. <laughs> That's kind of weird. <laughs> like a dramatic exit. When Malcolmson arrived home, he found that it was little after his usual time and Mrs. Dempster had gone away. The rules of Greenhouse charity were not to be neglected. He had he was glad to see that the place was bright and tidy, ah, with a cheerful fire and a well-trimmed lamp. Uh, the evening was colder than he thought it might have been expected in April, and a heavy wind was blowing with such uh, rapidly increasing strength that there was every promise of a storm during the night. For a few minutes after his entrance, the noise of the rats ceased, but so soon they became accustomed to his presence they began again. He was glad to hear them, for he felt well, once more the feeling of companionship in their noise. And his mind ran back to the strange fact that they only ceased to manifest themselves uh, when that other, uh, the great rat with the baleful eyes, came upon the scene. The reading lamp only was lit, and its green shade kept the ceiling and the upper part of the room in darkness, so that the cheerful light from the hearth spreading over the floor, shining with the white cloth, laid end over end on the table in the warm and cheery, and Malcolmson sat down to his dinner with a good appetite, ah, and a, a buoyant, oops, this is two pages, ugh, I want my Kindle back, I'll be so happy when I'm done with the Halloween, uh, spooktober, and I can just read a Kindle book again, spirit, after his dinner and a cigarette. He sat steadily down to work, determined not to let anything disturb him, uh, for he remembered his promise to the doctor and made up his mind to make the best of the time at his disposal. For an hour or so, uh, he worked all right, and then his thoughts began to wander from the books. Ooh, that's defeating the point of his vacation. The actual circumstances around him, the calls on his physical attention and his nervous susceptibility were not to be denied. By this time, the wind became a gale, and the gale became a storm. The old house, solid though it was, seemed to ooh, shake at its foundations, and the storm roared and raged through its main chimneys and its queer old gables, producing strange, eh, ugh, unearthly sounds in the empty room's corridors. Even the uh, great alarm bell on the roof must have felt the force of the wind, for the rope yeah, it rose and fell slightly, as though the bell were moved a little from time to time, and the limber rope fell on the oak floor with a hard and hollow sound. As Malcolmson listened to it, he bethought himself of the doctor's words. It is the rope which the hangman used for victims of the judge's judicial rancor. And he went over to the corner of the fireplace and took in his hand to look at it. Now there seemed a sort of deadly interest in it, and as he stood there, he lost himself for a moment in the speculation to who these victims were, 
and the grim wish of the judge to have such a ghastly relic ever under his eyes. As he stood there, swaying the bell on the roof, uh, still lifted the rope now and again, but presently there came a new sensation, a sort of tremor in the rope, as though something were moving along it. Looking up instinctively, Malcolmson saw the great rat coming slowly down toward him, uh, glaring at him steadily. He dropped the rope and started back with a muttered curse. And the rat, uh, turning, ran up the rope again and disappeared. At the same instant, Malcolmson, let's not forget his name is Malcolm Malcolmson, became conscious of the noise of the rats, which had ceased for a while, began again. All this sat him thinking, and it occurred to him that he had not investigated the lair of the rat or looked at the pictures as he intended. He lit up the other lamp without the shade and holding it up, he went and stood opposite the third picture from the fireplace on the right-hand side where he had seen the rat disappear on the previous night. At first glance, he started back so suddenly that he almost dropped the lamp and a deadly pallor overspread his face. His knees shook and heavy drops of sweat came on his forehead and he trembled like an aspen. But he was young and plucky, and he pulled himself together, and after a pause of a few seconds, stepped forward again, raised the lamp, and examined the picture, which he had been dusted and washed, and now stood out clearly. It was of a judge, dressed in his robes of scarlet and ermine. His face was strong and merciless, evil, crafty, and vindictive, with a, hmm, with a sensual mouth, hooked nose of ruddy color and shaped like a beak, or a bird of prey. Uh, the rest of his face was uh, cadaverous color. The eyes were a particular brilliance, and with a terribly malignant expression, he looked at him. Malcolmson grew cold, for he saw there was a counterpart of the eyes of the great rat. The lamp almost fell from his hand, and he saw the rat with his baleful eyes peering out through the hole in the corner of the picture and noted the sudden cessation and noise of the other rats. However, he pulled himself together and ran on with his examination of the picture. The judge was seated in a great high-backed carved oak chair on the right-hand side of a great stone fireplace where, in the corner, a rope hung down from the ceiling, its end lying coiled on the floor with a feeling of something like horror Malcolmson recognized the scene of the room as it stood and gazed around him in awestruck manner as though he expected to find some strange presence behind him. Then he looked over to the corner of the fireplace and uh, with a loud cry, he let the lamp fall from his hand. There, in the judge's armchair, the rope hanging behind sat the rat with the judge's baleful eyes, now intensified with a fiendish leer. Save for the howling of the storm without, there was silence. The fallen lamp recalled Malcolmson to himself. Fortunately, it was of metal, and so the oil was not split. However, the practical need of attending it uh, settled once his nervous apprehensions. Uh, when he had turned out, he wiped his brow and thought to himself, eh, This'll do, he said to himself. If I go on like this, I shall become a crazy fool. Now nah, this must stop, exclamation point. I promised the doctor I would not take tea. Uh, faith, he was pretty right. My nerves must have been getting into a uh, queer state. Funny I did not notice it. Uh, I never felt better in my life. However, it is all right now, and I shall not be such a fool again. 
Then he makes himself a good stiff glass of brandy. Well, that's better. And water and resolutely sat down to his work. How is alcohol more healthy than tea? Tea is nothing. Tea doesn't do anything to you at all. I'm a coffee man. And the times that I've run out of coffee and had to dig into the tea that I've got, it literally does nothing and I wind up getting headaches. It was nearly an hour when he looked up from his book, disturbed by a sudden stillness, without the wind howled and roared ever louder, and the rain drove in the sheets against the windows, beating like hail in the glass, but within, there was no sound whatever, save the echo of the wind as it roared in the great chimney, and now and then a great hiss of a few raindrops found their way down the chimney into the lull of the storm, and the fire had fallen low and ceased to flame. Though it threw out a red glow, Malcolmson listened attentively and presently heard a thin, squeaking noise, a very faint. It came from the corner of the room, where the rope hung down, and he thought it was a creaking of the rope on the floor as the swing of the bell raised and lowered it. Uh, looking up, however, he saw the dim light, the great rat clinging to the rope and gnawing it. The rope was already uh, nearly gnawed through, and he could see the lighter color where the strands were laid bare, and he looked at the job, uh, was completed, and severed the end of the rope fell clattering to the oaken floor, whilst an instant the great rat remained like a knob or a tassel at the end of the rope, which now began to sway to and fro. Ah, Malcolmson felt the moment another pang of terror as he thought about the possibility of calling the outer world to the assistance he was cut off. But an intense anger uh, took its place, and seizing the book he was reading, he hurled it at the rat. And the blow was well aimed, but before the missile could reach it, the rat dropped off and struck the floor without a soft thud. Malcolmson instantly rushed toward it, but it darted away and disappeared into the darkness of the shadows of the room. Malcolmson felt his work was over uh, for the night and determined then that it was a rare of the monotony of the proceedings by a hunt for the rat, he took off the green shade of the lamp as to ensure a wider spreading of light. As he did so, the gloom of the upper part of the room was relieved. And in the new flood of light, great by comparison of the previous darkness, the pictures on the walls stood out boldly. From where he stood, Malcolmson saw right opposite of him the third picture on the wall from the right of the fireplace. He rubbed his eyes in surprise, and then a great fear began to come upon him. In the center of the picture was a great irregular patch of brown canvas, as fresh as it was when it stretched from the frame. The background, eh, as before, the chair, the chimney corner, the rope, and the figure of the judge had disappeared. <laughs> Malcolmson, almost in a chill of horror, turned slowly around and then began to shake and tremble, like a man in a palsy. His strength seemed to have left him, and he was incapable of action or movement, hardly even of thought. He could only see and hear. There, on the great high-backed carved oak chair, sat the judge in his robes of scarlet and ermine, with his baleful eyes glaring vindictively, and a smile of triumph on the resolute, cruel mouth. As he lifted his hands, a black cap, Malcolmson felt as if the blood were running from his heart. As one does in moments of prolonged suspense, uh, there was a singing in his ears. Without he could hear a roar and a howl of the tempest, and through it swept the storm came the striking of midnight by the great chimes of the marketplace. He stood for a space of time that seemed to him endless. Still as a statue, with a wide, open, horror-struck eyes. Uh, breathless as the clock struck, 
So the smile of triumph on the judge's face intensified, and the last stroke of midnight, he placed the black cap on his head. Slowly and deliberately, the judge rose from his chair and picked up the piece of rope of the alarm bell which lay on the floor, drew it through his hands as if he enjoyed its touch, and then deliberately began to knot one end of it, fashioning it into a noose. This he tightened and tested with his foot, pulling hard at it until he was satisfied that in making a, a running noose of it, in which he held his hand, that he began to move along the table on the opposite side of Malcolmson, uh, keeping his eyes on him until he had passed him, and with a quick movement he stood in front of the door. Malcolmson uh, then began to feel that he was trapped and uh, tried to think of what he could do. There was some uh, fascination in the judge's eyes, which he never took off him, and he had perforce to look. He saw the judge's approach, still keeping between him and the door, the rays of the noose to throw it toward him as if to entangle him. Ah, With great effort he made a quick movement to one side and saw the rope fall beside him and uh, heard it strike the oaken floor. Again, the judge raised the noose and tried to ensnare him, ever keeping his baleful eyes fixed on him, and each time, uh, by a mighty effort, the student managed to, uh, to evade it. Uh, so this went on eh, many times, the uh, judge seeming never discouraged nor discomposed at failure, but uh, playing as a cat does with a mouse. At last, in despair, which had reached its climax, Malcolmson cast a quick glance around him. The lamp seemed to have blazed up, and there was a fairly good light in the room. At the many rat holes and in the chinks and crannies of the wainscot, he saw the rat's eyes, and this aspect, which was purely physical, gave him a, eh, a gleam of comfort. Now he looked around and saw the rope. The great alarm bell was laden with rats. Every inch of it was covered with them, and more and more were pouring through the small circular hole in the ceiling whence it emerged so that uh, with their weight, the bell was beginning to sway. Ah, well, that's fortunate. Hark! Exclamation point. It had swayed till the clapper had touched the bell. Oh, the sound was but a tiny one, but the bell was only beginning to sway, and it would increase. At the sound of the judge, who had been keeping his eyes fixed on Malcolmson, uh, looked up, and a scowl of diabolical anger overspread his face. His eyes fairly glowed like hot coals, and he stamped his foot with a sound that seemed to make the house shake, hmm. and a dreadful peal of thunder broke overhead as he raised the rope again, whilst the rats kept running up and down the rope as though working against time. This time, instead of throwing it, he drew it close to his victim and held open the noose as he approached. As he came closer, there seemed something paralyzing his very presence, and Malcolmson stood rigid as a corpse. He felt the judge's icy fingers mm, touch his throat as he adjusted the rope. The noose tightened, tightened. Then the judge, taking the rigid form of the student in his arms, carried him over and placed him standing in the oak chair. And stepping up beside him, put his hand up and caught the end of the swaying rope and the alarm bell. As he raised his hand, the rats fled squeaking and disappeared through the hole in the ceiling. Taking uh, the end of the noose, which was round Malcolmson's neck, he tied it to the hanging bell rope. Then, descending, pulled away the chair. When the alarm bell of the judge's house began to sound, a crowd soon assembled. A whole crowd? I thought it was just one guy sitting up while listening for it. Lights and torches of various kinds appeared and Soon a silent crowd was hurrying to the spot. They knocked loudly at the door, but there was no reply. Then they burst in the door and poured into the great dining room. 
the, the doctor. The doctor at the head. Oh, uh, whatever. There, at the end of the rope of the great alarm bell, hung the body of the student. And on the face of the judge in the picture was a malignant smile. Well, what was good about this story? Uh, just as a brief overview, college student who has the worst idea of what a vacation is uh, decides to go just to a random town because he doesn't trust his friends because he doesn't want to run into friends of friends because he's a weird antisocial person. Fine, whatever. So he goes to some random town, winds up staying in this old house, and uh, he's got a couple people that care about him randomly, which is nice. I can't imagine that happening today if I went to some small town in Minnesota and it'd be like, I'm here for the weekend. Uh, they'd be like, fine, just pay your bill and be quiet. And don't make a lot of noise. But here they love him and they care about him. And all the thoughts I have about old gross houses, they cover in this book, which makes me think that uh, Bram Stoker and I share the same mind. Why would you sleep in a gross old bed full of dust and dead bugs and everything? Well, they have a, a new bed. You got mice, or rats in this case, like crazy in the house? Uh, gross. How are you going to protect yourself from that? Well, they actually put up a screen. Him sitting in that room with all the mice running around and being comforted by it is weird. I would not be comforted. I wouldn't want my feet on the floor because I'd be afraid they'd touch my ankles. But in this case, he's fine. Big rat bothers him. Big rat turns out to be the a uh, murderous judge. The weird rope in the corner of the room is a bell, which is also made out of a noose. So, interesting. What is good about this story? Everything. It didn't do any of that stuff I hate, where it's like, if he's going to get out of bed, and he's going to go try to get some breakfast, it takes nine pages to get there, and you're not even at the point yet. Uh, here, everything, you get to the point, uh, all the detail is pertinent, and not wasteful, and uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's as good as I remember it when I read it before. Uh, what sucks? Eh, not a whole lot. I don't think much sucks about this story. I actually thoroughly enjoyed it, even on my second reading. Uh, I guess what sucks is you had a doctor who was brought in to talk to this uh, lad, because everyone's concerned about this boy, uh, kind of the Bella Swan of Twilight, uh, where everyone in town just loves her and worries about her all the time. I guess that's what this guy has. Maybe that kind of sucks. Uh, but also the, the, the doctor says, I'll be up all night waiting to hear the sound of the bell. As soon as the bell does ring, all of a sudden the whole town's there. So that was a little weird. Don't get what that was about. But it doesn't really matter. It's a very minor point to complain about. What do we learn? Well, don't stay in old houses where there's a lot of uh, pests, uh, vermin, bugs, everything else. It's not hygienic. You're going to get a mouse poop in the old teacup that wasn't thoroughly washed out, and that's going to go in your mouth, and that's gross. Eh, that's pretty much it. How do I tie it in with what I had to say before? Well, I don't have to tie it in with it. It was just a, a good, spooky story. And my October has been ruined by 2020, and uh, my Halloween is uh, average. So I hope to all the listeners out there 
who may be hearing this episode here at the beginning of their Halloween day. Uh, I hope yours is better. And uh, if you see a kid wearing a Teletubbies costume or a, a Mighty Morphin Power Ranger, apparently I only associate children with still liking children's stuff from the 90s. I can't seem to think of anything modern. iCarly? Nope, that's from the 2000s. Yeah, I can't think of anything modern. If you see a child wearing something that a child would wear on Halloween, uh, in purposely ask them if it's a different costume, and they'll catch on and they'll think it's delightful. Thanks for listening. Uh, like and subscribe? I don't know how you do that. How do you promote yourself? Uh, leave a comment. That's something that's supposed to be beneficial, even though I'm not going to probably read it. Uh, I won't see it. Maybe like a year from now. Uh, but go to the website, nuzzlehouse.com, if you want to reach out to me or me and Ben and ask any questions or say anything. Hey, been doing this for about a year. It'd be nice if someone said hi. One person said hi, and that was kind of nice, but I think I ruined it by being awkward. So it'd be nice if you said, oh, I listened to your show. Uh, keep up the good work. That'd be something kind of nice to see every once in a long while. Uh, And also on the website, you can look through old episodes or if there's a specific author you're just dying to hear me read or me and Ben review, uh, it's on there too. All right, thanks for listening and uh, get ready for a November where I read fairy tale stories because I'm just running out of stuff.